You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. Yep, Tommy's here. Aaron's here. This show's presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for Windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. Josh Norman ran with the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain, Tommy, earlier this week. Apparently, there's video of him leaping a bull inside a bull ring during this event. We have not found the video. The ESPN story says there is video of it. Five people so far have been gored during this event. Josh Norman's not one of them. I mean, some Redskin fans, perhaps, well, I won't go there. No, actually. let's not, let's not um, go but there. But he did say that there, it was a, there were a couple of close calls during it. He said it was crazy, quote, I had to face the bull straight on. It was fun. It was worth it. It was really worth it, closed quote. So he well, he should be in pretty good shape for training camp then. I if guess he was so. training from running from bulls. He's an interesting guy. He's a very inter- he's a very eclectic guy. Yes. For, you know, professional athletes based on what we typically deal with. Well, he, I think that's p- he part travels of- a ton. He experiences a lot and this by the way, I would imagine that this was not something that if he had gotten hurt that he would have ever collected another cent from the Redskins. The Redskins would have been able to get themselves out of the contract, I'm sure, for a running with the Bulls in Pamplona. You would think so. You would think that they would have to pay for that. But you never know. You never know with the Redskins. You never know. Um, I like him, though. I've always liked him. I don't love him as a player, uh, but every single time I've had a chance to sit down and interview him, he came on with Cooley and I at least four or five times, usually in studio. And uh, he's he's one of these guys that's just interesting. He's smart. He's got a lot of charisma, Josh Norman does. Um, I just think that, you know, the fit here hasn't been great. He hasn't had a great season yet here. No, no, he hasn't. He's been okay. Um, he's been okay. He's been okay. How are you? Are you I'm, okay? I'm better than okay, baby. Yeah? I'm, I'm Superman. You are? Bullets bounce off me. You're uh, you're busy this week. Yes, I you're am. You're writing columns. You're working th- four-hour radio shows yep. in the afternoon for yeah. Chad, who's on vacation. You and Andy yeah. uh, this week on 106.7 The Fan. Um, I did a segment yesterday, Tommy, without you. I thought it would be best to do this without you. It was more of a let's try to be optimistic day, and I came up with five reasons why the Redskins could make the playoffs in 2019, what was really interesting is you and I both get so much feedback from people. I, I can't take it anymore. I can't take the negativity <laughs> anymore. Know. You know, from from the people that have really been drinking the Kool Aid for years. And yesterday, after doing that segment, I got a ton of tweets that said, "Dude, are you serious? <laughs> Playoffs? You're out of your mind. <laughs> Stick to the reality stuff you've been doing," um, which was kind of funny. But I now, just, now you know what's interesting. I mean, I did think about this uh, after you had that yesterday. And, I, you know, look, I think what I think is going to happen and what I think could happen, there's really, if things broke right for them, there's no reason why they could start off just like they did last year. I know they have a rough schedule, but I look back at their schedule last year, and while it wasn't exactly the same, it wasn't a cakewalk. Their 6-3 and three record was, was not necessarily a cakewalk. I mean, they played some good teams. They played the Packers. They played the Saints. The Packers was the most impressive win during yeah. that stretch. So, I mean, so 
I mean, they have the same blueprint to do the same thing. They have a quarterback in Case Keenum who can probably manage the game well if they if they go with him. Alex Smith style. Yeah. Uh, they, the defense is at probably at least as good, if not better. We hope. You know, we hope. So, I mean, and, and they have Adrian Peterson back and, uh, you know, uh, uh, recovered Darius Geis. So it's possible if they use the same formula – they they could wind up being a playoff team. I I, I can buy into that. You just that. came up with like three of my five reasons. Yeah. I mean, the number one is they do have to avoid what's happened the last two years. They can't get decimated by injuries. This is a team without a lot of depth and without elite starters to begin with. Um, so you can't have a team that finishes for a third straight season in the top three of man games lost and, and expect them to make the postseason. And you, you got to have Trent Williams. Um, I, I had that in others receiving votes in uh-huh. terms of my top five, but health is one. And then two, Tommy, I said, Case Keenum's got to start all of your games. That's the only way you make the postseason next year. I'm, and it wasn't, and it wasn't an anti Dwayne Haskins thing. It was an anti rookie quarterback thing. Right. If you're going to make the postseason in 2019, it's going to be with Case Keenum making you know the majority, the significant majority of starts, if not all 16 of the starts, because he's the quarterback that has shown that with a good defense and a good running game, actually an excellent running game and an excellent defense in 2017, he can make a few plays, manage games, and get you to the postseason. Yes. Um, and so... I I think that that's critical, and I I don't know that that's the best path for the Redskins to take long term. It still may be better to not go to the playoffs, but start Dwayne Haskins twelve games anyway or eleven games. Um, but I think that if you are saying how could the Redskins make the playoffs, you're not making the playoffs more likely than not with Dwayne Haskins starting the majority of games, and in my view, not yours. I'm sure Colt McCoy starting the majority. Oh, of I games. think if Colt McCoy is healthy, they have just as good a, a, a chance to make the playoffs do. as they do with Case Keenum, and I'm sure Jay Gruden does too. I'm sure Jay Gruden does also. Yeah, I think it's a blind spot for him and well, for I, you. No, I think I think he sees very well. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, all of a sudden he but, sees well. Huh? But 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 look, we know there's going to. I mean, we know that there's things that are going to get in the way. I mean, you've got Jay Gruden, arguably, you know, as a lame duck perception-wise. We're staying away from the things that'll get in the uh, way. Okay, okay. So Th- this just, is about right, how it right. could Let me happen. Stick to it. it could, it could happen. Yeah, yes. because we know what could get in the way. We've yes. spent the better part of <laughs> yeah. of seven or eight no, years. No, so you're right. Talking about what can I get mean, in the way. The same formula that that got them the six and three last year. They they can they can do the same thing. That was my fifth reason. Is is you know they have to. Jay Gruden, I would not call um, a coach that has a disciplined football team during his oh, you no. know, five years. Um, but um, the That's one negative, the one stre- the one stretch of of disciplined football was last year over the first half of the season. They won the turnover battle. They won the penalty yardage battle. They yeah. won the field, the all, field, field, position field position battle. And all of this stuff that tends to you know, be a result of a disciplined football team they had going in the first half of that season. Now, again, I thought as we were going through it, there certainly were some red flags about whether or not it could continue. 
um, you know, as in the good offensive teams they faced, their defense got shredded. Yes. You know, New Orleans and Atlanta in particular. And even Tampa shredded them, even though not points-wise. 500 yards and, and three points. And offensively, they were very limited um, last year at times. And so I thought eventually that would catch up with them. But they had the formula, the NFL tried-and-true formula for having a chance to win close games. Yeah. Which they did. Yes, they did. You know, they won a lot of close games. The Carolina game, the Dallas game, you know, the the the, Gi- the Giant game was a one-score game, even though they really dominated the Giants early on. But um, The first Giants yeah, game. Yeah, the first Giants game. So, anyway, it's the NFL. This is always possible in the NFL. And at the end of doing this, I, I essentially stated there's a one-in-five chance this could happen. It's about a 20% chance that this could happen, that they could make the postseason. And if they make it, it would be this way. It would be shocking if they made it because Dwayne Haskins came out and lit the league on fire as a rookie. Or they ended up having the 85 Bears defense, which it's not. But I do agree with you. That's a key here and was one of the things that I mentioned. It has to make another marked improvement you know the 2017 to 2018 season big improvement and now 2018 to 2019 got to be a big improvement now that's that could be a little bit on on paper it looks like that could happen but let's not forget that Greg Minuski may have been the problem as to why it regressed so much last year which is why I think they tried to replace him is they they got easy to figure out yeah. at some point during the season um, the other part of it, Tommy, is just that Case Keenum, he really does, like Alex Smith did and did in, in in Kansas City, Case Keenum has to have a supporting cast. In particular, he's got to have a running game. It, without a running game, you got no shot. But the Redskins could potentially have a decent yes, running could. game. Yes, they could. We, look, I mean, we're going to operate under the assumption that if Darius Geis is healthy, he'll be an effective running back at the very minimum. And we saw what Adrian Peterson can do. So uh, yeah, I think I think it's safe to assume that he'll have the support of a good running game to fall back on, so he won't have to throw the ball twenty five, thirty times a game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you 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 got to have that with with Case Keenum. See, I mean, we, we there you go, <laughs> there you go. I don't know how much more positive you can get than that. Now you know, in twenty seventeen, a team that I actually thought was pretty good until the injuries kicked in. If you recall, you know, they destroyed the Raiders, they beat the Rams. We didn't even know the Rams were good at that time. They went to Arrowhead and had had a legit shot to beat the Chiefs on Monday Night Football. Jay Gruden sort of stepped all over his, you know what, at the end of that game. Um, and then all the injuries kicked in. And even with the injuries, they went to Seattle and won. They should have beaten New Orleans. You know, had a two two score fifteen point lead late um, and blew that one. That twenty seventeen team, you know, had uh, had a legit chance to win. You know, nine, ten games. The problem with that particular season is somebody reminded me um, yesterday on Twitter is that he's, you know, I, I forget who it was. He said, Remember, Kevin, that the Redskins were decent that year and could have potentially gone nine and seven or ten and six, but that was the year that you had to go ten and six or eleven and five yes. just to make it as a wild card in the NFC. And that's true. That particular year, the Panthers and the Falcons were the two wild cards. The Panthers were eleven and five, and the Falcons were ten and six. And you never know; that could be the case this year. It may take more than nine wins to get into the postseason. Last year, Philadelphia got in as the final wild card with a nine and seven record. I think they were the final wild card. I think Seattle was the first one. 
Um, and, you know, the Redskins, let's face it, they don't win more than 10 games ever. No. So it, when we're talking about hitting an inside straight for this organization, it means winning 10. Winning 9 or 10 yes. is an inside straight for them. And in some seasons, that's not good enough for the postseason. Anyway, um, there was a, uh, a, a, a... We'll stick with the Redskins here for a little bit since we started with them. Um, my guy, Bill Barnwell, who writes, you know, the war and peace uh, stories, um, the guy that you don't read and oh, you, you didn't even know, name? Bill Barnwell, you know who he is. Who's he write for? ESPN.com. Bill Barnwell writes these very lengthy pieces on ESPN.com. And he wrote a piece that, that came out early this morning, ranking the NFL's offensive arsenals, 32 worst all the way to number one. Um, and basically, you know, he's considering how the players that the teams have will perform in 2019. He's not necessarily just basing it off of recent, uh, uh, re- recent performance. He's, he's, he's guessing on what, you know, it will be in 2019. And he says also that the, as, as he prefaces it with a, a lengthy preview before he of starts course. ranking them of course because he's in love with his that words. the arsenals are weighted um the the arsenal rankings are weighted more towards receivers than tight ends or, or running backs um and he says also that the top elite level talent wins out over depth anyway the rankings start with the 32nd ranked offensive arsenal jacksonville then it's denver miami seattle and then the Redskins. So the Redskins have the fifth worst offensive arsenal in the NFL, according to uh, Bill Barnwell. And he writes, the investments Washington has made at wide receiver haven't worked out. Former, former Seahawks wideout Paul Richardson signed to a five-year, $40 million deal, wasn't healthy in Seattle and caught just 20 passes in seven games last season. Former first-rounder Josh Doxson hasn't developed, and Washington just declined the fifth-year option on Doxson. Jamison Crowder left for the Jets. Uh, Mr. Irrelevant, Trey Quinn, will be his replacement. Jay Gruden drafted Terry McLaurin in the third round, but there, but is there any reason to think Washington is going to start developing wideouts effectively? This is likely the league's worst group of starting wide receivers. Wow. that's the kind. Those are the kind of tools you want to put around a rookie quarterback, aren't they? <sighs> I know. And, you know, the funny thing is, according to Warren Sharp, this is the most expensive offense in, in the NFL. This is, is the most They've, costly offense well, that will take the field because in the of, NFL because of the investment right. in Alex Smith, yeah. and you know that is not going to uh, right. to pay off. Um, yeah. So I, so I mean, again, another reason why you you want to put this all this limited offense in the hands of a quarterback who understands limitations, yes. and that's Case Keenum. It's Colt McCoy too, but I'm going to operate under the assumption that that Colt just isn't going to stay healthy. So uh, that's Case Keenum. You you don't want to uh, experiment and test out a rookie uh, with these these kind of weapons, Uh, especially if you're Jay Gruden and, you know, you have the expectation or the hope, and we're assuming he does, of of having a team good enough for him to, to remain as head coach. You know what's interesting? I, I was thinking about this as I was reading this earlier this morning, um, that the Redskins, according to Barnwell, look, I mean, I don't know if it's the worst. It's certainly among the five or six worst you know, starting wide receiver groups in the NFL. And we, we know that you know, in terms of offensive weapons, they don't have much. I mean, you have to pray that Jordan Reed comes back, plays 
13 games and is Jordan Reed again. You got to hope that Chris Thompson is a weapon out of the backfield, that Darius Geis pays off as a second round pick and turns into a, a guy that with Adrian Peterson is a big time back, that, that, that uh, Vernon Davis continues to be effective and that somebody, whether it's Richardson or Doxson or Harmon or McLaurin, somebody steps up. You, uh, the, the, This is a big reach here to expect the supporting cast to be good enough um, for them offensively. But you know what Jay Gruden has said twice, um, or did say twice over the course of OTAs and minicamp? I really like our receivers. I think we're a little bit underrated there. And a couple of the guys, um, who uh, John Allen, what did he say to us, uh, Aaron? He's, I asked him, give me the player that you think will surprise more than any other player on the roster. And he said, Cam Sims. Yeah. Right? Yes. The, the big wide receiver. That we haven't seen that much, right. but the six five, two hundred and twenty pound wide receiver that they signed um, last year uh, as an undrafted free agent. I mean, Gruden knows offensive players. He also, um, you know, I'm sure he's also very positive, and, and usually lists all of them when he's yes. naming them. If you've noticed in the past, but it's a it's a reach to think that the Redskins are going to be dynamic offensively with their talent with their players. You got to hope Jordan Reed is still their most talented and gifted offensive receiver or pass catcher. But we've seen what you know Jordan Reed produces. Yeah, and um, I think and while that Jordan inconsistency while because Jordan, of injury. While Reed is their best pass catcher, I think their best offensive weapon when healthy is Chris Thompson. I think the guy that's the guy that keeps defenses on their heels. I think that's the guy that helps you get uh, when it's first and, and 10, that, that helps you get first down on first and second down with a pass out of the backfield. You know, a, a, a 10-yard pass turns into a 25-yard pass with Chris Thompson uh, running the ball, but he has not proven to stay healthy. I mean, he was so effective early in 2017 with Kirk Cousins. So good. Well, I mean, the bottom line is he's played 10 games each in the last two seasons. 10 in 2017 before he got injured and 10 games last year. He's got to play more games too. I mean, I agree with you. You know, despite the addition of new players and excitement, you know, over guys like Geis and McLaurin and Harmon, whatever, name, name any player that we really haven't seen, including Richardson, play that much as a Redskin. The two players that really, actually three, that can really make a difference, but they have to be on the field, are Jordan Reed, Chris Thompson, and Adrian Peterson. Yes. Those are the three that you know you can count on if, oh, I say count on, you can count on to produce if they're in the game and healthy. Yes. Uh, anyway. Um, so that's not that much of a reach. That's a 20% reach, right? <laughs> a 20% reach? Yeah, a 20% chance that they make the postseason. Yeah. Which, by the way, you could pr- pretty much put on any of the perceived bad teams. You know, the perceived bad rosters. You could put a 1-5. in five. I mean, I'd put a 1-5 in five chance on Arizona. It's the NFL. Anything can happen. That. Um, I, the one other quick thing that I wanted to say about Barnwell's rankings, which I did find interesting, and I actually like his work. I think he does pretty good work. Is that the three other NFC East teams when ranking their offensive arsenals, are all in the top 10. The Giants? The Giants he has as the eighth best offensive arsenal in the NFL. And I mentioned this the other day. You know, they of course, they, they lose OBJ. 
But, you know, they added Golden Tate. Sterling Shepard can play. Evan Ingram may not be a a blocking tight end, but is a pass-catching tight end. And is there a better back than Saquon Barkley? I mean, he's certainly in the top three yeah. in backs. Um, the Cowboys ranked sixth among offensive arsenals with, you know, uh, Elliott and Cooper. Um, Witten's back. Uh, I actually think in some ways the giant look is equal to the Cowboys, and then Philadelphia's is fourth overall. Um, you know, the Eagles have some some changes, um, you know, offensively. They've got Jackson back. They still have, uh, you know, uh, they've got Aguilar. They added Miles Sanders, the running back from Penn State, who I like a lot. Um, they added that big kid from Stanford, uh, Aaron. What's that kid's name? The big kid from with the hyphenated name, Whiteside. Our Sega Whiteside. Yeah, yeah. They added him. Um, still have Ertz, right? Uh, you, th- th- this is this is a really good offensive arsenal. Uh, by the way, somebody it's changing subjects real quickly. Somebody texted me yesterday the opening week one line between the Eagles and the Redskins. The Eagles are eight and a half, nine point favorites in week one. They're the biggest favorite right now in week one um, on the board as a, as an eight and a half, nine point favorite over the Redskins. And he said, do you think this is fair and do you think it'll change? And I said, it seems fair to me. And the only reason it will change significantly is if Carson Wentz doesn't play. Right. The Redskins quarterback situation is already factored into the price. And Wentz starting is factored into the price as well. Um, But whether it's Keenum or Haskins or Colt McCoy isn't going to make that much of a difference. Preseason performances aren't going to make that much of a difference. If Carson Wentz can't play the opener, then the line will be Philadelphia minus three or minus four. That's the only thing that will change that point spread significantly between now and then. It's funny to go back and look in recent years, the very early week one lines, they change. But they don't change a lot, yeah. you know. There's because you really don't learn anything about NFL teams in preseason. In preseason, yeah. the only thing that changes them are significant injuries in now, terms of the point now spreads. You mentioned the Eagles if they don't have Carson Wentz. I mean, consider the real possibility. We haven't had the blowback that the Redskins probably deserve for this, but we. But you could if Carson Wentz is hurt. And Nate Sudfeld gets in the game. I mean, the Eagles obviously think very highly of Nate Sudfeld. Right. They've kept they kept three quarterbacks on the roster for two years just so they could keep Nate Sudfeld around. Something the Redskins refused to do. Mm-hmm. And now he's the backup. You know, and and what I mean, if Nate Sudfeld comes in and proves to be a quality NFL quarterback, <laughs> I mean, that, that would just be just another. Another slap on the head, another smashing with the hammer on the head. This is what keeps you going. Like just the thought of Nate Sudfeld coming in for Carson Wentz and doing what Nick Foles did. Well, because Redskins should pay for that mistake. It was a ridiculous mistake. If they he liked, was a sixth round pick. But they liked him. They liked him. They liked him. They liked him and they gave yeah. him away. And they gave him away to a team much better than them that scarfed him up and did everything they could protect to protect him. They should pay for that mistake. You think it's more likely that Nate Sudfeld could lead Philadelphia to the playoffs or Kirk Cousins can lead Minnesota to a, to a oh, championship I, game? Oh, I think, I think it's more likely that Nate Sudfeld could lead the Eagles to the playoffs. I think he could. 
Really? But I can't look. I can't say. I can't really say that. I've, I have. I've barely seen Nate Sudfeld play. How could I possibly say that? Right. I'm gonna. I'm, I, that was a stupid thing to say. Erase that. Okay. I'm just kidding. Um, keep it in there. The uh, the other thing that I just wanted to mention is that you know going through all the NFL stories, I'm I'm sick of the NBA. Although I, although I am gonna triple down on something today in today's show about the NBA, about Russell Westbrook. Um, that's coming up shortly. But there was a ranking um, of the offensive lines, the projected starting offensive lines in the NFL and where they ranked. And this is something that, for whatever reason, Redskin fans have been hung up on and, and adamant about for, um, I don't know, two or three years. Ever since it became obvious that Brandon Sheriff was really good and Morgan Moses you know, was a legitimate right tackle to go with Trent Williams, a lot of Redskin fans have thought that this is a top-five offensive line. And I've been saying it's not even... It's not top five. It's it's barely top ten, the Redskins' offensive line, when you go through the list of offensive lines in the league, and it's the third best in the division. Now, the Giants have had an awful offensive line, but the Cowboys and Eagles' offensive lines have been better. Um, so uh, CBSSports.com, I think it was, maybe courtesy of Pro Football Focus, I don't know, had a ranking, you know, 1 through 32 of the offensive lines, and the Redskins were 14th. That seems right to me. And by the way, it includes the projection of Trent Williams yes. starting at left tackle with Eric Flowers starting at left guard, and you know the rest of it, Ruye at center, Sheriff, and Moses. Um, you know, when, when, it's, when it's really healthy, and it hasn't been the last two years, it's a really good offensive line. It's just not an elite offensive line, but it is somewhere in that, you know, I would put it in the 10 to 15 range. Somewhere in that range when it's really healthy. But you've seen much better offensive lines. I mean, the Ravens have had a good offensive line. But the Panthers but have had a good a, offensive line. It's an offensive line Eagles, you can live with. Cowboys, absolutely. You can, you can win with. Oh, it's been one of the strengths of their team when, yes. when healthy because it hasn't been the last two years. Yeah. But projecting all of those guys playing you know, 15 or 16 games healthy, Trent, which, by the way, Trent Williams doesn't play. He plays a lot of games hurt, which you know I can cr- give him credit for. Um, he also will miss a couple of games here and there, and, and I'm not just talking about the suspensions from from years ago. Um, but you know, when you start with Sheriff and Trent Williams, you're starting with arguably top five players at each of those positions. Yeah. So that puts you, you know, already in a good position. And I think Chase Ruye has been a good center um, for them. Uh, that's a sixth round pick that they hit on. I mean, he's a legitimate starting center in the NFL. Um, one other Redskins-related story is the story of Albert Hainsworth, yes, who is in dire need of a kidney. Are um, you are you uh, willing to uh, donate yours? No, I'm not. If really? Are you willing to donate yours? I mean, I would think that there'd be some. Why are, we shouldn't? This shouldn't be something. I'm that, not making that, fun of it. Yes, I'm you asking, are. No, I'm not. I'm asking you a question. Well, what did what did, what was your expectation on my answer? Did did you think my answer might be yes? Well, I never know. I don't know how deep your roots go when it comes to how, the Redskins fandom. What what, uh, what percentage chance did you think that I would say yes seriously? I don't know. I, yeah. I'd say so. Fifth, uh, I'd say. About zero <laughs> percent. Yeah. So you're 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 trying to have fun with it. No, I'm not. I'm not the, trying to the have man fun is, with it. The man is suffering from kidney failure, and and he may die if he doesn't get a transplant at 38 years old. That's very sad. Well, I just asked, very sad. Do you think there's a Redskins fan out there that would give him a kidney? <laughs> huh? Yes, I, 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 I bet there is. I bet there is. Absolutely. Um, he certainly is at, he said, this is hard for me to say, but my doctor said I should reach out to my family, friends, and fans. Hainsworth wrote yesterday on Instagram, some of you may have known 
Um, I've been battling kidney disease for a few years. Now the time has come, family, friends, and fans. I'm in dire need of a kidney. Mine have finally failed me uh, on July 7th, 2019. It's hard to believe from being a professional athlete to only eight seasons in retirement that my body has taken another major blow. First with the brain aneurysm three seasons out of the NFL, remember that, uh, to now my kidneys failing me. Um, But the bright side of this latest ordeal, I can ask for help by asking for someone to generously donate a kidney. I hope he gets one. I I think he will. I I, I mean, don't don't most people who need kidneys these days get them? Because, I mean, look, if people care about him, you can live with just one kidney. Like if it's someone that you care about, yeah, you know, you can donate your kidney and still live with the one you've got. I hope he gets a kidney. I think he will. I hope he does. I, I, there's nothing else to say on this. I know you would like to take it in in a in a mocking no direction. No, I would. I, this is a, this is a Albert, serious thing. I mean, and you I could I, probably I, say something about the picture of him laying down in the hospital bed. Similarly, I, I similar never to occurred. That never occurred to me. It, it, it crossed your mind, no. apparently. <laughs> okay. but, but it never occurred to me. Albert Hainsworth, I'm praying for you. I hope you get that kidney. Um, you're, it, you're certainly not a favorite Redskin for most Redskin fans of all time, but this is a human but thing. But look, listen. There, and there, I have human empathy. There are I've... Redskins fans out there who think he was a victim of Mike Shanahan. <laughs> so those fans out there, if you think that Albert Hainsworth you remember was, that. was wronged by Mike Shanahan... Here you have a chance to step up and help him. Do you remember that? Of course. I, I mean, that was so outrageous yeah. that fans were taking his side when yeah. he he had zero interest in playing for the team or doing what anything doing anything the coaches asked him to do. Now, you know, one of the defenses of Hainsworth is he signed the big you know all time contract with the Redskins that made him the highest paid defensive player in the history of the game, with the expectation of you know playing uh in a in a in a 4-3 defense right um and when Shanahan got here and went to a 3-4 and wanted him to you know potentially be a nose tackle that's not what he wanted to do but you know these things happen it's not I don't think it's built into your contract when you sign the biggest deal in NFL history that the team can't switch to a 4-3 or 3-4 and switch your position these things do happen these things happen uh we're praying for you hopefully you'll get that kidney um Albert Hainsworth uh, quick word about stamps.com. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It tends to be a real hassle. But if you're a small business like mine, you need stamps.com. I use stamps.com. It's a popular time-saving tool for small businesses. It eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. When I use stamps for the first time for the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast, couldn't believe that I got 40% off all priority mail and five cents off every first-class stamp. Stamps.com brings all of the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com handles it all with ease. Simply use your computer. It's really easy. You print the official U.S. postage right from your computer for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that 
that simple. It's a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses like mine already use Stamps.com. Now, right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and use my code KevinDC. That's Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in my code K-E-V-I-N-D-C, KevinDC. Um, wanted to do just literally five minutes, no more, on the NBA. Because I know people are getting sick of the NBA. And I'm sort of getting sick of the NBA as well. It, it's but, sc- but before you do that, okay. I was sitting here thinking of something uh, when we were talking about Albert Hainsworth and his need for a kidney. Uh, if I needed a kidney, would you give me one of yours? If you needed one? Yeah. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know the process, but if it was something that I could give you and continue to live the, my life and, and not put myself in jeopardy of dying, yes, I would. Okay. I would. Okay. Why? Do I you, just wondered. Do you need one? No, I don't need one. Are you about to need one? No, my kidneys work fine. They do? Yes, they do. In fact, my kidneys have been battle tested. <laughs> yeah, the, your kidneys have certainly been battle tested. Yeah. Your liver as well. Yes. More likely than not. Um... Would you give me one of yours? Of course. Really? Absolutely. Okay. I don't really... Un- I, I, the medical stuff, when it comes to a lot of the medical stuff, I I don't like delving into the details... No, you don't. ...in great depth, because then I start to think that maybe some of that's going to happen to me. Right. Um, the wor- so- I bet you the worst thing that you probably do... When you get one little symptom is go to the uh, internet and start reading WebMD. I used to do that. That's a bad thing. I used to do that. I would recommend against that for yeah. all of you. You know, WebMD might be a good resource, but it really creates more anxiety than anything else. Yes. Um, but the, do you know, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've told you this. Do you know who is, uh, I've said this to his face, so I don't have a problem saying it behind his back, but a major hypochondriac. Is John Riggins? Is I he mean, really? Oh my God! Really? Gets one a guy, little a guy who who the fl- baddest ass of all time. I mean, a guy who who like me for years probably treated his body like a twenty dollar right. hooker. <laughs> yes, um, but you know he's also I, I I haven't I haven't actually talked to John in a while. Maybe I'll give him give him a call see if he'll come on the podcast um, before the season starts. Although I think he told me last year. That 980 didn't want him doing anything but 980. Um, or Red Sk- where, where was he? Was he doing stuff for 980 last year? He was, right? You know, I don't know, Kevin. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but I didn't work at 980 last year. It doesn't mean year. that you don't know who works for them. Well, I, I, Kevin, when we worked at 980, we knew who worked at 1067. Yes. Okay. Did, did Aaron, did Rigo do the pregame show last year or not I, for 980? Did he do anything for 980? Did he go on with Galdi? He might have been, but. Just because he was on the pregame show, I don't remember him doing stuff outside of the pregame okay. show. If he, I, I, if he did, it's I don't know the answer to that. I know that he was doing a podcast for the Redskins. Okay, I just remember I asked him to come on one time last year, and he said I, they won't let me. So I didn't know if that was the Redskins or 980, whatever. But Rigo used to, you know, if he got a little bit of a you know sharp pain somewhere, yeah, he'd think the worst. 
<laughs> he would think the worst, and worst end, case and end up potentially in an emergency room <laughs> just to be sent home twenty minutes later. Hey, you're fine. Um, anyway, uh, how did we get sidetracked on that? No, I, would, I, I would give I you asked, a kidney. I would, I would give, give you a kidney, kidney too. Buddy. Okay, good. So, um, back to the NBA for a moment. I, I know I'm sick of it too. I'm sick of all of this stuff. I guess the last, you know, big Ubre, by the way, signed a deal yesterday uh, to stay in Phoenix. Let me mention um, something about Kelly Ubre. Yes, that I've I've found out. He was the source of a lot of friction in the front office. A lot of friction. There were a lot of people who worked in the organization that didn't want him to that go. Didn't no, that didn't want him. Didn't want him. Oh, I know. And others that wanted him. Yeah, yeah. But I think the, the the group that didn't want him around was a lot bigger. And he has become, in a way, a symbol within the front office of how not to do business anymore. Signed a two-year, $30 million deal to stay with the Suns. He actually played very well after getting traded to the Suns. I liked Kelly Oubre. I did. I don't know um, what kind of guy he was in the locker room. He was an odd guy, there's no doubt. Remember the story of him working out in some gym on a road trip, and there were guys there that he booted off the court just to shoot on one end of the court. Remember that story? Oh, yeah. Well, um, this is a guy who one time wore a jacket to Capital One Arena before the game that basically said F you on the back of yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I mean if if you're if you're transparent Ted, what did you think of that? Right. Um here are the two NBA things that I wanted to mention. First of all, the news that came out yesterday about Kawhi Leonard's deal with the Clippers, I found to be very interesting. He signed what, a two years. He essentially signed a three year deal, but it's a two year deal guaranteed with his option for a third. He left a lot of money on the table to become a free agent potentially in two years, um, and and in no more than than three years. It, it's a hundred and three point one million dollar deal for three years. He could have signed a four year deal. Uh, it, with the Clippers for a lot more money and a five-year deal in Toronto for a hell of a lot more money. I don't know. I, I guess when you're a player who's had some injuries like Kawhi Leonard has, and you are, you know, you're you're approaching that portion of your career where you're going to turn 30 before your next contract. I don't know. That's a lot of birds in hand for a few more in the bush. Um, but whatever he's now, controlling, he's he's got the chance to be a free agent after two years. And by the way, I think his contract now syncs up with the Paul George. Okay, contract. Okay, here's what else it does. Apparently, for, I, I I only know this because I learned this uh, in the past 24 hours. Uh, players with 10 plus years experience, and that'll be his 10th year. Yeah, can earn a max contract worth 35 percent of the salary cap. Yep. So that may be why he he, uh, he did the two year cutoff, uh, because that'll be the tenth year where he is eligible for something like that. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for wh- why that um, that happened, and that's probably the biggest. It's just you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty something million dollars potentially he left on the table. But they, and this, he's these, all be these healthy, players and he's are got, doing that. I know all they, these. I, I understand and the that. NBA thought that you know the provisions they put in their contracts. That gave the whole, the team that the, the player is with the opportunity to pay them more money to keep them would have kept these players. Right. And it hasn't. And, and, and here's the other part of this, too, really, is that these players have all earned so much money already anyway. They're just going for the kill. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, leaving that much money on the table is not a big deal, potentially. Like, risking that much in the event that he got hurt. 
um, is is not that much and, because and they, they already have enough money for themselves and multiple future generations in their family. But the irony yeah. is that some of them will be bankrupt when they're done. That's true. You know, I doubt if Kawhi Leonard will be because I've heard he's he's a frugal kind of guy. Right. You know, but uh, some of these guys, no matter how much they think they make that they don't need the money, they'll need the money 10 years after they're done playing. Um, the other quick thing, because uh, I do want to keep the five minutes, is I want to double, well, it's not doubling down anymore. It's probably tripling or quadrupling down on so Russell gonna, Westbrook. So you're going to repeat yourself. Yeah. Uh, Russell Westbrook, if he, if he goes to Miami and the Heat have him and Jimmy Butler, I think they can get to a championship. I, I am not giving up on Russell Westbrook. He's been one of my favorite players forever, as you know. And you have not been a fan of Russell yeah. Westbrook. I mean, you've you've essentially said never going to win a championship. He's uncoachable with Russell Russell Westbrook, and he's uncoachable and he's hard to play with. And you know what? I think all of those things are probably have a lot of truth to him. But he and Jimmy Butler together—that's what I'm rooting for now. Now, apparently, what Miami, um, what Oklahoma City is asking for, may be too much for Miami to give up, but I would love to see Jimmy Butler and Russell Westbrook together in Miami. I think that that team would be, they might not be the favorite and they certainly wouldn't, you know, in Vegas, uh, but I would make, I would put a, I would make a futures bet on Miami to make the NBA finals with the two of them. I don't believe in Philadelphia next year. Um, And Milwaukee, you know, Giannis is going to have to prove to me that he can do it in the postseason. You so, know, that's going to get in the way of the Wizards making the playoffs, Kevin. Yeah, it might. I mean, if Miami's better, I don't know why you would be rooting for Miami to be better because that, that's contrary to, to rooting for the home team, rooting for the Wizards. I have a – actually, I have one NBA question to ask you. Really? A serious Me? question. Yes, for you. Is it practical anymore for a team's front office – to say no to a player, an elite player, a superstar player who's under contract, who asks to be traded. Is it practical anymore for that front office to say, nope, you sign the deal, you got two years, three years left in the deal, you're staying Anthony Davis or you're staying Paul George? Okay, let's put it this way. If you're in a marriage and your spouse comes to you and says, I want out, is it practical for you to sit there and say no? I don't want you to go because once they make that statement, once they've reached that conclusion, whether it's the wife or the player, they're gone. Well, they can go. I mean, they're not contractually. I know that, but 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 the point is, once that player has approached you on that, he's already gone in his mind. I know. So I don't. I don't. So it's not practical. I don't think it is. Can't say no anymore. I think you got to maximize the impact of the loss as best as you can. That should be your goal after that. I think you're right about that. I, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I, I know you feel that, that that you're sort of pleased that this league, the players, basically dictate everything. I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious w- about it because we haven't seen that before, and I'm willing to give the players a try, and let's see how they do it. I just I, I think ultimately, Tommy, a lot of that will hurt and impact some of your fan base or potential fan base. I do think that fans want more stability, even though this, you know, has been, you know, an entertaining portion of the NBA calendar. But I think, you know, an Oklahoma City fan, when Paul George signed that contract last year and said, I want to stay in Oklahoma City, they think he should stay for more than one more year. Yeah, but how how long can you 
how long can you justify being a dope? And you got to be a dope. As a if, fan? Yeah. If you've lived through what's happened since the LeBron to Miami uh I guess what began, I'm saying is you don't have to be a dope, which is the risk to the league, is you can tune out and you can say, this isn't for me anymore. I don't want... I, I don't want this kind of instability. I don't want this kind of movement. I don't want players teaming up with other players and you know and and basically making it a league and it's always been this way. This is the irony of what I'm about to say or or the contradiction to what I'm going to say because it's always been a league where only two or three teams could win, but for different reasons. Right. But it is still a league, even though the next year looks a little bit more wide open, where only a handful of teams can win the whole thing. Okay, let me do my psychological profile here of the fan base uh, now and moving forward. And this is, you know, I use this as a joke with baseball, but it's only half joking. The NBA obviously appeals to a younger crowd, millennials, and, and, and the the whole the whole persona of millennials now is what are we going to what are we going to do today you know not what we're going to do tomorrow what we're going what are we going to do today you know non-commitment that's that's the whole social media millennial thing so this plays right into that the problem is as you and i know when you get older you seek out stability it 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 becomes part of uh, the attraction to you and that's not going to be the case in the NBA. On the other hand, baseball, which is so stable, it's considered a dinosaur, is going to wind up being the, the, the sport left when the American population is old and aging and there's only a couple of kids left around. Yeah, I mean, the NFL has great stability. The NFL is a league in which the teams, the uniforms... Um, are more important and sort of supersede oh, yeah. individual players. Now, yeah. the NBA's never been a league about the teams. No. I mean, you know, you can go back and say, oh, the great Celtics teams, the great Lakers teams, but, you know, they were great because of Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish, and DJ, and and Magic, and Kareem, and Worthy. I mean, it's... it's um, I, I just think the league, you know, uh, Silver said something the other day. I didn't read his his comments in great detail, but he did say that we need to look at this free agency system and the way things are working. I, I, I think there should be some recognition from front office, you know, the NBA league office anyway, that this is not exciting and entertaining for all of their fans. It's not. And by the way, adding challenges for the coaches as if for replay is stupid. Yeah, I, agree. I haven't weighed in on that, but that's dumb. Um, you can't delay these games. You can't interrupt these games as many times as they do it in the final two minutes uh, of of these games. But look, the NBA is relatively healthy right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, the value of an NBA franchise is through the roof. It is. It's gone you know? through the roof. It's still so, nowhere near the NFL franchises, no, but but it it really has gone through the roof. And and th- this whole idea of uh, what what does Silver say exactly? Uh, he, what did he say? Here it is. I, I I I've got it right here. He he acknowledged that the league has work to do in order to enforce free agency rules, and said trade demands are disheartening. All right, so trade demands are disheartening and is something that needs to be addressed. Um, continuing his quote, my sense in the room uh, today was, especially when it comes to free agency and the rules around it, that we've got work to do. 
Um, as I've said, it's still the same principles of fair balance of power in a sense that it's a level playing field. I think that's what teams want to know. Close quote. By the way, he also addressed the ridiculous tra- uh, draft night situation where players are putting on hats of <laughs> teams that they'll never play for. Um, but, you know, the, the quote where he says trade demands are disheartening. Well, here's the, the thing with the NBA. Uh, the owners lost their chance to keep control of, this, of, of the players in this league when they caved in in the 2011 lockout and, and, and let the players back in. That was an opportunity because the players were not making the kind of money that they are now, obviously. They, they were and where you could have pressured those players into pretty much accepting demands that would have been much more favorable for the owners in terms of control of player movement and salary. Now, if you if you're the if you're the governors, I shouldn't use the word owners because they're governors. That's right. If if you're the governors of the NBA, you've lost that power. I mean, you know, the players are going to look at you like 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 you got two heads if you say you're going to lock them out. For one thing, they have a lot more money to be able to live on during a lockout. The second thing is what we've seen from LeBron, who uh, James, who is arguably the most powerful person in the league, and what we've seen uh, with the big three. I know it's a novelty act, but I think the reality is, and, and the, the players have done this before, tried this before and failed, that the players could say, okay, we'll start our own league. I mean, I mean, I think you got enough money out there, and you got enough influence with guys like LeBron James, that I think they have a better chance of pulling it off well, now of than they, they ever do, would. Because you don't need in the NFL, you to pluck a few stars, a league is not made. Right. In the NBA, to pluck a few stars, you got a good shot yeah. at creating a league. And, and um, the owners don't want that because you know what? You don't want to get in that kind of war, so they lost their chance. I mean, they. They, they just have to be happy that they've got courtside seats at this point if you're a governor. <laughs> if you're, well, in one particular governor's case, he's he's got bench seats. That's true. He sits on his team's bench, and nobody seems to ever mention anything about it. But we do on this podcast. <laughs> he's the only owner in sports, the only one in sports who sits on his team's bench. Uh, we've m- mentioned the others. Arthur Blank is on the sideline some of the time in Atlanta. Jerry Jones some of the time. Cuban sits behind the bench a couple of rows. Ted sits, Governor Ted, sits on his team's bench. <laughs> on his bench. Um, all right, so that's much longer on the NBA that I wanted to go. I know you want to talk about uh, Ball Four and the passing of Jim Bouton. Before we get to that, can I just mention the Federer-Nadal rivalry? Yes, which, absolutely. Um, will continue tomorrow. Um at the uh, at Wimbledon in the in the Wimbledon semifinals, I, I I used to love tennis, Tommy. I don't know if you were ever really into it or not. I used to love it. Wimbledon used to be a big deal. I would sit there and watch McEnroe play a three and a half hour match, start oh, I to liked finish. It. I, I if liked that's what it, it took, absolutely. You know, Agassiz and Sampras, the same thing. I used to play tennis in the seventies, like everybody else did. Everybody played. Um, so we've you know it's not as popular in the US anymore we i think everybody can acknowledge that it's a super popular sport you know especially in Europe and yes, in South America yes internationally it's still very um, popular very popular and Federer and Nadal tomorrow are going to face off for the 40th time for the 14th time in a major 
This rivalry is really one of the most underrated sports rivalries. Maybe it's not underrated. Oh, it is underrated. This is one of the great rivalries in the history of sports. And by the way, is now easily, you know, in terms of matches played and important matches head-to-head played, the number one rivalry in the history of men's tennis. Martina uh, Navratilova and Chris Everett is probably the number one rivalry in the history of women's tennis. But remember, the women's field was narrow back in the day. They, they they were two of the best three or four. They were guaranteed to face each other yeah. year after year. And I guess you could say the men's field, even though it's deeper than it's ever been at the top, you know, it, with Federer, Nadal, and, 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 and Djokovic, it's been pretty top-heavy as well. But they're going to play tomorrow in a... In, for the uh, for the 40th time, head-to-head, for the 14th time in a Grand Slam. And what's interesting is Federer, you know, owns the... He's got the most Grand Slam titles. He's got 20. Nadal is second. He's got 18. But head-to-head, Nadal has really owned Federer. He's won 24 of the previous 39 matches. He's, his record is 24-15 and 15 head-to-head. 10-3 and three against Federer in Grand Slams. Wow. Ten and three, Nadal over Federer. I bring this up because at some point when both of their incredible careers are over, people are going to debate the greatest player in the history of tennis. And Federer may end up with more Grand Slam I mean, titles. I get the impression that, that Federer is generally acknowledged as, as the greatest player in tennis. I, I think he is. But Nadal has been a better player with Federer head-to-head. That's interesting. I think I don't think most people... I don't, I don't think the average fan... Who doesn't pay attention much to tennis, except just peripherally? I don't think they realize that. I don't think they do either. Now, you know, again, it's not just their overall record, twenty-four and fifteen, Nadal's record against Federer head-to-head. He's ten and three in the thirteen Grand Slams. Now, Nadal has been a much better player on clay right. than any player in the history of the sport. He's the greatest clay quarter of all time. In fact, that's the one thing that will never get debated. Like in, in in a tennis discussion about the greatest ever, the one thing now that is an absolute fact is that Nadal's the greatest clay court player in the history of the game. Um, m- many of his wins over Federer in Grand Slams have come... Uh, you know, at the French Open. His first Grand Slam head-to-head with Federer was in the 2005. Tommy, the first time they played each other was 15 years ago. This is a rivalry that's 15 years old. And Nadal won as the the 34th-ranked player in the world. He beat uh, Federer at the Miami Open in 2004. But in 2005, they played at the French, and Nadal won that match. The next time they played at a major was also the French um, and Nadal won that one. Then they played at Wimbledon, and Federer won. And their 2008 Wimbledon final is, you know, argued um, as the greatest men's match in history. And that was the match that Nadal beat Federer at Wimbledon 9-7 in the fifth set in a match that took four hours and 48 minutes. Um Interestingly, in recent years, now Nadal just beat Federer at the French in the spring in straight sets in the semifinals, but Federer at one point was trailing in this rivalry 23-10. to 10. 
but he won five straight matches against Nadal between um, 2015 and early 2019. He had won five in a row, uh, actually six in a row. One of them was a walkover. Uh, Nadal had to default because of an injury. Um, But Nadal won the last one. But this is really an incredible sports rivalry. You know, you're right. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a bar and heard people arguing, who's better, Federer or Nadal? Yeah, and most of the time, most people will say it's Federer because he's got the 20 Grand Slams, by the way, at 37 years old, too. This is a sport that's fascinating in that it used to be a young person sport, Tommy. Actually, if you go way back... Laver and Ash played well into their 30s yes. and won. Billie Jean King well into her you know, mid to late 30s and won. But then there was that stretch where you know Bjorg, uh, uh, Bjorn Borg retired at 25 years old. McEnroe's best years came in his mid-20s, and then he essentially was done after that. Uh, you know, Agassi and Sampras and Courier and Chang in that era wasn't a late into your, you know, deep into your 30s sport. Now, you know, you've got Serena well into her 30s, Venus well into her 30s. Now, she hasn't won majors recently, um, but Serena winning majors into her mid-30s. Federer competing and winning majors into his late 30s. I don't know how much longer Federer can play, but every time you watch him, he looks to be the fittest person, fittest athlete in the world. Yeah. But it's really, um, you know, it's an incredible, an incredible rivalry uh, that, that resumes tomorrow. And then, by the way, you know, if it's Federer-Djokovic in the final, um, that's a rivalry that has had a significant number uh, of, of matches uh, overall. If Federer faces Djokovic, Tommy, in the final, they have faced each other 47 times. Djokovic and Federer, 15 times in Grand Slams. So it's actually, in terms of the numbers of matches and the number of Grand Slams, it's it's even more... Uh, they play. They faced each other more than Federer and Nadal. Federer and Nadal, though, I think is the rivalry. But Federer Djokovic, Djokovic leads head to head twenty five twenty two and nine six over Federer in Grand Slams. Yet with all this, it's a game that doesn't interest most Americans anymore. I know. I mean, we you could argue that you're watching the greatest era of tennis ever, and it's. It's an it's a novelty here in in America now. I mean, because this look, we people have this, will watch Serena on Saturday morning, yes. but they won't care much about the men's final on no, Sunday morning. No, I mean, we yeah, you know, we we're seeing this in some levels in boxing. I mean, boxing has fallen on hard times here in in, in the United States, while overseas it's still a huge sport. I mean, they they get sixty seventy thousand people in 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 Europe in arenas and stadium in stadiums. For boxing matches. I mean, so, so I mean, you know, we tend to think that our world stops at the Atlantic and the Pacific <laughs> Ocean. That's the way Americans operate. And I understand why. We don't. We're we not, like what we like, and we don't care what the rest of the world likes. And, and plus. But I think the soccer thing, the World Cup thing, has been interesting over, I don't know, maybe the last 20 years. I think if you go past 20 years ago, Americans couldn't have cared less about the World Cup. It just it didn't mean anything. Right. Uh, it, maybe it's beyond 20 years. The one that was here in the U.S. was what, 94? Was that the one that was in the U.S.? I, I think believe, it was 94. So that so. was maybe the first one that people got interested in. But, Tommy, I do think the World Cup has become 
<clears throat> well, it's become popular in the U.S. I mean, yes, it's it not, not NFL popular, but it's become NBA popular. We saw that with some of the ratings yes. in the Women's World Cup. Um, by the way, just one other thing, because I wanted to extend it, because I just pulled this up and I, I was just curious. The Djokovic-Nadal rivalry. They've played each other 54 times. 54 times wow. the two of them have played. So it really, these three players um, and the number of... You know, if if you think about men's tennis, the top three major winners are Federer with 20, Nadal with 18, and Djokovic with 15. When Sampras got his 14th or 13th to pass, I think it was Laver, or maybe it was Roy Emerson, um, this, people didn't think it would ever be touched. It's been touched in one era by three different players. Exceeded. Federer's got 20, Nadal's got 18, Djokovic has 15. Um, major championships, and more likely than not, one of the three is going to win this weekend because the fourth player is like the 25th ranked player in the world. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd do a little bit of tennis today with you, and I'm glad you participated. Did I? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, You wanted to talk about Jim Bouton, um, the Ball Four author, and we will get to that in a moment, but real quickly uh, on Window Nation. The intense summer heat is back, causing your old leaky windows to produce unnecessary high-energy bills, allowing damaging UV rays to fade your valuables, Tommy, and making your windows even less effective. Listen up. The kids are at camp, families are taking vacation, but my good friends at Window Nation, they're still working. They're the ones with more than 80,000 satisfied customers, including me, and an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating. They've got extra capacity right now, and they've got to keep the factory busy and the installers working. So for the first time ever, not only will you get one window free for every window you buy, no minimum or maximum purchase required, on all style windows, by the way, um, no down payment required, no payment of any kind, but for the first time ever, no interest for two full years. Buy now, start saving now, and literally pay nothing for 24 months. Trust the window company that I've trusted over the years. That's Window Nation. Call 866-90-NATION to get one free window for every window you buy, plus no down payment, no payments of any kind, and no interest for two full years. Call soon. This sale ends July 31st. All right, tell me about Ball 4. It's a book that it's one of my areas that I have a blind spot for. I never read it. Sorry. You know, that's that's amazing. I know. Because it's one of the great books. Uh, it's the, it's I think it's the best sports book of the 20th century. I mean, it really is that. Bi- I mean, what it did was change the whole way we look, not just at baseball, but all sports. And it was the perfect book for the, for the time. It came out in 1970 when you had a generation of, of, of people growing up that were disillusioned by, you know, the things that had come to define America, including baseball. And then Jim Bouton wrote this great book that was criticized by people in the in the, in the game, but it actually, what it did, and I, I called it in a column in the Washington Times uh, later today, I called it a love story because basically he shared what goes on inside baseball that he loves so much with everybody else. Before, the saying always was, what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. But he turned around and, you know, made these players human, you know, showed their flaws, showed that, that you know, they, they had the same anxieties that everybody else did. And it, it was something that had never been written before. 
and I, I read it before every baseball season. Do you I, really? Oh yeah, absolutely. So how, you've read it for? I've read it for forty, prob- fifty times. I probably read it at least for twenty, twenty-five years wow. straight. Yeah, I mean because it, it it gets me excited. The characters in in the book, uh, Lou Pinella as a rookie, the nineteen sixty-nine Seattle Pilots, the one year that the, the Pilots existed. It, and, you know, the commissioner of, of baseball called Bouton into his office and demanded that he sign a statement saying that he made stuff up, which Bouton <clears> refused <throat> to do. Uh, it, it, it's a great book. It, and the New York Public Library cons- called it one of the greatest books of the 20th century really? as well. Yeah. No, I've, I, I, know, I know how acclaimed this book is, and I, I just... I mean, here's, to... here's a story that has to do with Washington from the book. Uh, which which I, I quoted in, in, in my column. Uh, apparently, the Shoreham Hotel in the district was considered the, one of the best places for players to, to do peeping Tom excursions. This is what they used to do. I mean, they basically, they called it Spotting Beaver, you know? <laughs> and, and the Shoreham Hotel was perfect for it, apparently. This is what he wrote. And this is when he was a rookie with the Yankee, Yankees, where he won 20 games, by the way. Uh, with the Yankees once 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 a heck of a, a a pitcher the Yankees would go up there in squads of 15 or more on the roof often led by Mickey Mantle himself you needed a lot of guys to do the spotting one of the first big thrills I had with the Yankees was joining about half the club on the roof of the shore at 2 30 in the morning I remember saying to myself so this is the big leagues you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. What, there, how were they? So, when you say peeping Tom, were they looking into other hotel yes. r- room windows? They were looking into other windows with uh, binoculars. And, uh, I I would assume so. I mean, this this was considered, you know, voyeurism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he he wrote. Uh, here's another passage he wrote. This is startling when you think in 1970. We've been running short of greenies. We don't get them from the trainer because greenies are against club policy. Greenies being yeah, speed, speed, yeah, you know. So we get them from other players on other teams who have friends who are doctors or friends who know where to get greenies. One of our lads is going to have a bunch of greenies mailed to him by some guys on the Red Sox. And to think you can spend five years in jail for giving your friend a marijuana cigarette. You know, so there's stuff like that. And, and you know, I, I point out in the column that it was the perfect book for the times. Like four years later, the, everyone in the White House would go to jail and the president would resign. So, I mean, you couldn't get away with fairy tales anymore. That wasn't going to fly. People, people wanted, uh, you know, their, their heroes, they're already been disillusioned by a lot of things in the country at that time. Was he like Woodward and Bernstein, essentially <laughs> disclosing and revealing things no, that no, people he, were... He just kept a diary. He wasn't a reporter, but I'm just right. saying he just, this was shocking to... Oh, it, it, again, like I said, he oh, he was uh, kind of banned from Yankee Stadium for years. You know, they do the old-timers day game every, every year there. And uh, he was banned until about 1998, until 1998 when they brought him back. And he received a standing ovation when he came back. So, yeah, it caused a lot of bad feelings for a lot of people who just didn't understand that this was something great for baseball. I mean, this was, this was opening up the clubhouse oh. and showing that these guys, you know, are, are, are human. They're, I mean, and, and I, th- I think it was fabulous. What did, his, what did his teammates think? Oh, they hated it. Uh, everybody hated it for the most part. There were a handful of teammates who understood. 
But, uh, I mean, you know. When it was released in 1970, yeah. did it become a, a New York oh, Times bestseller, bestseller right, out of, right out of the gate? A bestseller. And it's funny, like a lot of times. And remember, baseball at that point is number one in this country. Yeah. Uh, the commissioner helped make it a bestseller by making a big deal about how, how negative it was right. to baseball, which yeah, is how things go. You know, so. That I was mean, music to his ears. Now, what's interesting. Uh, two, not this past spring, but the spring before that, I when I was at spring training, I went around and I asked some Washington Nationals if they had ever read it. I think I remember this. And not only had they not read it, they had never heard of it. I mean, and I just I found that hard to believe that a generation of baseball players uh, had never heard of. There's no argument about this: the greatest baseball book ever written in, in ball four. And I'm half tempted to uh, buy a copy for Sean Doolittle, who said he never heard of it and didn't read it. You know, obviously didn't read it uh, because he's a, a Bouton kindred spirit. You know, he's the kind of guy who Jim Bouton would have loved. And Bouton was a counterculture guy for baseball at the time. You know, he was against the Vietnam War. Uh, he had books in his locker when no one had books in their locker in, in, in a major league baseball clubhouse. And uh, I think Sean Doolittle would really appreciate Ball Four. I think I'm going to try to buy a copy and give it to him. I, I read in his obit that he and a former teammate actually developed Big League Chew, the gum. Rob Nelson, who I had on my podcast, Cigars and Curveballs, uh, I interviewed him, and they were playing for an, a legendary independent league team called the Portland Mavericks. You ever want to see a great documentary called, called The Battered Bastards of Baseball? It was about the, the Portland Mavericks. And Bounton played for them for a while, like, like 77, 78. And Rob Nelson was kind of like a pitching coach, relief pitcher, did everything there. And uh, Rob Nelson threw out this idea. Wouldn't it be great if you could, you know, instead of chewing tobacco, had something like bubble gum that would look like tobacco, shredded bubble gum, and Bounton thought it was a great idea. So the two of them came up with something, you know, created the prototype and were partners for years in Big League True, which turned out to be a huge success. Yeah, well, I was going to say, probably a, a bit much bigger success than even the book. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, no, how, Big League True. How much but, money did he make off that? Do you know? I don't know. Eventually, I mean, he got bought out eventually. And, and you know, I talked to Rob Nelson on the podcast and he said, I mean, basically, they made the deal on a handshake. And they were partners for years. Uh, and, uh, again, if, if you go to Dick's or a sporting goods store and you're waiting in line at the cash register, there it is, Big League Chew, uh, you know, re ready to buy. I used to chew it when, I, when I, was, I was younger. I thought it was a cool thing. You know, it comes in this pouch that looks like chewing tobacco. Over 800 million pouches of Big League Chew have been sold yeah. since 1980. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I know Rob Nelson, the guy who, who was his partner, and, and, and did interview him. So uh, And he loved Jim Bowden. I had a chance to interview Bowden a couple of times over the years. By the way, Rob Nelson was the actual founder yes. of the company. Yeah, but his partner was Bowden. Yeah. He, put, he put up the money, $10,000 in the beginning. Of, of his money that he put up. Uh, I interviewed Bouton a couple of times over the years. He was always very gracious and very fun to, to interview. I was always very honored for that chance. Um, 
I know you. This isn't the first time that you've told me. It's not like I didn't know about Balthor and Jim Bouton, but it's not the first time that you've you know gone on about how great this book is. And I think every single time you've done it before, I've always said, you know what, I'm going to go read the book, and then I don't. But I actually, I think I really do want to read this book now. Finally. Yeah, I mean, and I would recommend uh, to anybody. Do you have a copy on you? I do have a copy in my car. I brought it with me. Okay. But, uh, is it? super old oh it's super old. crumbs and oh it's got food it's got milk and, and food and all kinds peanut of butter stuff. and cheese a- absolutely it's got my footprints <laughs> all over it i'd recommend if you if you've read ball four if you do read ball four then read the sequel he wrote to it which was i'm glad you didn't take it personally <laughs> that was the name of the book and a lot of it was the reaction to the book you know jim bounton went into uh television sports tv also while he was still playing in New York, uh, and he had a lot of encounters with Howard Cosell. He's got some great Howard Cosell stories in there as well. But a really smart guy who I think gave a great gift to baseball in this book, and it took people a a few years to recognize that, but uh, it, it it helps prepare me for every baseball season. Uh, very good, very good. I think that that's. I, I mean, I, I. There's been so much written since his passing, um, yeah. and so many people like you feel the same way. I mean, it sounds like. By the way, you, you know, I don't know if it's just Doolittle, but it's it, it's shocking to me that that players haven't heard. Yeah. Of the book, I know. Um, I was as, stunned by that. As lifelong baseball players, um, and I'm sure fans. Uh, the Nationals, by the way, just real quickly, you won't be here for you know to talk about the, this series that opens up the you know, tech, not technically the second half, but the, the post All Star right against break, the Phillies um, up schedule. in Philadelphia. Uh, they got three against the Phillies. Strasburg and Scherzer will both pitch. This is a huge series to start off, and then they've got you know a couple with the Orioles, and then it's you know four with the Braves yeah. on the road. Yeah, the, 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 it's a big time for the Phillies. The Phillies are reeling. Yeah, the Phillies are, are in in a lot of trouble. This is a bigger series. This is a big series for the Phillies, as much as the Nationals. Did you watch the All Star Game? I bits and pieces of it, not the whole thing. It's a good game. It was fun. I mean, I I like the idea of that they 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 mic'd up a lot of these players. That's what I talked with Aaron about yeah. yesterday. And, and look, if you're going to do it, this is the game to do it of in. Of course. And uh, what was unique, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, we've had the players mic'd up in the outfield before, but you had Freddie Freeman that, and others that were batting. That was that amazing. Was, that was really Freddie cool. Freddie Freeman was great. That, that was cool. Yeah, yeah that, that was the that best was part of the cool. night. This is the time to do that in an exhibition game like this. I, I thought I thought it was it, it it was it was really fun to watch. So so I really enjoyed that. And you know what else I enjoyed through the broadcast? What all the times that they mentioned the Washington Nationals in the broadcast. You know they kept talking about the NL East and the race, and they mentioned the Braves, and then they mentioned the Phillies, and then they mentioned the Braves. Oh, they didn't mention. And the then they Nets. mentioned the Phillies. Hmm. And. It, there was no Washington Nationals. Well, the Nationals are the second place team right I now. I know. I don't think. I don't think anybody realized that. Well, they got rather hot there right before the break <laughs> um, to get back into it. Speaking of All Star Games, Tom, did you see that they uh, they did the robot umpire for the Atlantic League All Star Game this week? Yes, I did. Oh, yes, God. I did. Uh, electronic balls and strikes. I don't. I, I I would prefer an umpire. Really? Yeah, I like the human element to uh, but these I think sports. But I think this is coming. Probably. I, I think I think it's coming. I think there's a few more changes that they're talking about that more more disturbing to me, like moving the mound back by two feet. I'm not I'm not crazy about that. 
But uh, if you want to look, if you want to go see the electronic uh, balls and strikes in these changes right down in Waldorf, the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. Uh, I, got my, I got my tickets. I got tickets <laughs> no, to a game. Don't. Yes, no, I, don't. I got them from your auction. But you didn't get them yet. I think uh, you handed me something. No, I didn't. In get, an envelope. I didn't. Are the tickets not in there? No. Oh. I don't think so. Or is it just a, a, a promise to, to give me tickets for one of the games? No, I think it was a, a porn. Well, I think it was porn. I, well, uh, then I'll open it up when okay. I get home. Um, all right. Uh, do you have anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Uh, I, you know what I got? What? I got a kidney for you, buddy. No, I got one for you, too. <laughs> um, to listen to Tommy today on JFK uh, with Andy later on this afternoon. I'm back tomorrow. We missed Scott today, maybe. I know he's at the beach this week. He had a hole-in-one at the Midway Park. Yeah, I saw he posted that. Oh, he did? He just he ca- he called me, and he said, I bet you haven't had a hole-in-one today. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm at Midway Park 3, and I just had a hole-in-one on like a 90-yard hole. Um, anyway, uh, uh, he'll maybe he'll call in tomorrow, but we'll be back tomorrow. Tommy back next week. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, review us on iTunes, subscribe if you haven't. doesn't cost you anything. And tell people who haven't listened, uh, it's available also on the Internet at thekevinsheehanshow.com. Have a great day.